Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of the men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those who, of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when, God, when, only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good to be with you. Um, if you're newer to Trinity and you don't know me, my name is Nick Polico, and I get to pastor Redemption Church down in Palos Heights, which is actually an extension campus of Trinity. And so occasionally I get to come up here and preach on a Sunday morning and then zip out the door to get down to Redemption in time to preach there. But as you are well aware of by now, today is the day where we mark the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven. And we tend to know a little bit more, I think, of what to do with other Christian holidays, Advent, Christmas, Easter. It's harder for us to know what to do with the ascension of Jesus. Like, it's sort of an interesting story. He just went up there. How, how is this meant to shape our life and to give us encouragement? And so as we turn to this passage together to try to answer this question in part, let's ask for God's blessing on our reflection on his word. Lord, we thank you for giving us this day, a summer day, even where uh, perhaps attendance is down a bit during this season and things are feeling a bit slower as some are perhaps weary as they near the end of a school year or begin to look forward to vacations. And we nevertheless are grateful that you have gathered us around your word and table and ask that the living Christ himself, who reigns and intercedes for us, would, would minister to us now, and that you would help us, as this passage invites us to, to draw near to the throne of grace, to receive mercy. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. On uh, November 4th, 2008, my wife Jennifer and I got out of bed and got out of our apartment a little earlier than we normally did at the time. 
and we walked across the street to the village hall of Venita Park, Missouri, which is a near suburb of St. Louis where we lived at the time. And we got at the, into the back of a long line uh, consisting of other Venita Park residents. And the atmosphere in this crowd was sort of like a party atmosphere. A lot of people were, were smiling and laughing and joking and, and telling stories. Some people were, were singing. There were people driving past, honking their horns and waving at the people who were in line. And the reason for all of this excitement in this community was that Venita Park is an almost entirely low-income African-American community. And this was the day of the presidential election between Senators Barack Obama and John McCain. And it was pretty clear to everybody who was likely to win. And the, the excitement in this community was not because of the Democratic Party platform, at least in my perception. It was because this was a group of people that has historically been marginalized and kept from having access to the same sort of quality of life that many of their white neighbors in the region of St. Louis have. Especially in St. Louis, it's a profoundly segregated place where the African-American communities are deeply distressed because of historic practices and the results of which are still with us. And to the surprise of these people, they were about to see somebody who represented their community ascend to the highest office in the most powerful country in the world. And it felt to them as though they were ascending with him, so to speak. A couple of years later, I saw an African-American man in St. Louis, in a poor neighborhood in St. Louis, and he looked like a, a probably fairly low-income fellow, but he was wearing a t-shirt that simply read, My Prez is Black. It might be hard for most of us in this room to understand how profound that election was for those sorts of communities. But the reason I tell this story, which is probably somewhat obvious now, is because it, it provides a sort of dim reflection, a bit of a portrait of the significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ himself. Just like the ascension of a, the first African-American president felt to many African-Americans as though an entire people was ascending with him, the ascension of Jesus Christ is not just the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's the ascension of Jesus, and it's the ascension of everybody who Jesus represents. His ascension is our ascension. And so I want to look at this kind of mysterious passage from the book of Hebrews, which we're not going to be able to exhaustively unpack. There's so much here. But I want to just look at two realities that our ascension with Jesus, two realities that are displayed here, and examine what they mean for us. And so the first is that we are given access to God himself. Every single one of us wrestles with this, I think, with this kind of perennial problem of feeling like we might not have access to that which will make us well, that which will make us whole. There are uh, two uh, professors, or one is a professor, both are, are therapists, though. One is named B. Janet Hibbs, and another is named Anthony 
Rostein, and they just wrote a book about the dramatic increase in mental illness on college campuses. It's called The Stressed Years of Their Lives. And uh, in an interview with the two of them that I heard this week, one of them said, the overwhelming majority of high school students today, somewhere around 90%, report college as their top stressor. And it's not only the kids, but their parents who are anxious. So we're living in a culture of fear. Parents are scared that there's only one path to the good life. And so for some parents who are affluent enough, that means a brand name college or a top prep. For other parents, maybe less affluent, it's just a lot of pressure on the kids. You have to do well. You can't make a mistake. Your chances will be ruined. And so we see, especially amongst very smart kids, what we call destructive perfectionism. It's a fear that my access to the life that I want is is under threat. And maybe college is not the fear that drives you or your life because of your, your particular location or stage in life, but whether it's your retirement or whether it's a relationship you're longing for or whatever it is, every single one of us is threatened constantly by this fear that we are not going to have access to whatever it is that will make us whole. And it's the result of this collective memory we have of the garden where we had access to God uninhibited by any distance or by sin. And that is why it is good news that we're we're told in the book of Hebrews that we have a great high priest, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. I want you, uh, this takes a bit of sustained consideration, but I want you to try to imagine in your mind's eye the sorts of images that would have come into mind for these Jewish Christians when they thought about the great high priests of Israel. There were, as, as many of you probably know, you know, there was a group of priests in Israel, but there was only one who was called the high priest. And he was the only person who had access to the holiest place in the temple, the Holy of Holies. And he could only go there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And in order to do so, he had to enact an elaborate set of rituals to atone for his sins and the sins of the people and the place itself because of its presence amongst a sinful people. And also on the Day of Atonement, he enacted this this visual display where he took a goat and he would lay his hands over the head of the goat and confess the sins of the people so that in a symbolic way, the people's sins were placed onto the goat as a substitute. And then the goat was sent off to run into the wilderness, symbolically carrying the sins of the people away from them so that they could be free of their sin and dwell in God's presence. But that's not all we can say about the work of the the high priests. In Exodus 28 verses 9 through 12, this involves reading a couple verses, but keep your attention. This is so marvelously beautiful. The high priests were meant to wear these elaborate garments that were rich with meaning. Here's part of a description of how they were meant to adorn themselves. Exodus 28, 9 through 12. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Of their names, uh, six of their names on the first stone, 
and the names of the remaining six on the second stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron, who is the high priest, shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Which means that even though it was only the high priest who had access to the holiest place of the temple, when the high priest went into that place, he had the people's names engraved like jewels on his own body and brought those names with him into the holy of holies. And we are told that we have now in the new covenant age, not just a high priest, but a great high priest. Verse 14, we have a great high priest. It's this word, megon for great, like a mega high priest who is far superior to the high priests that came before him. He's superior because the book of Hebrews tells us he is not only the great high priest who makes the full and final offering for sin that all of those previous offerings were simply shadows of, but he himself becomes the offering. He is the, the mega high priest because he is not only able to pass through the different places in the temple, which is just a sort of metaphor for the presence of God, a metaphor for the heavens, a picture, but he, we're told, in verse 14, is passed through the heavens themselves into the actual presence of God. And he's a mega high priest because he's not just what, somebody who teaches about salvation or who gives us metaphors about salvation, but we're told in verse 9 that being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We could get deep in the weeds about this order of Melchizedek thing, but Melchizedek was a priest who existed before the regular Old Testament priests, and so the point is simply that Jesus is superior to the priests that came before, being in this order of Melchizedek. He is the very source of salvation. There are only, you know, two kinds of people in the world and in this room. Those who love the movie The Princess Bride and those who have not yet discovered what it means to live. And so for those of you who know the film or who need to know to get the film, you will remember or hopefully you will one day see the scene when the, 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 the chief villain of the film, who's a man of rather small stature, and his swashbuckling henchman and his other henchman, who's a giant, and the princess, who they have kidnapped, are seeking to escape by boat over a border, and there's another boat behind them piloted by a mysterious figure chasing them. And the villain, however, says of this one who's chasing them, seeking to capture them in the princess, whoever he is, he's too late. See? The cliffs of insanity. Hurry up. Move the thing and the other thing. He knows about as much about boats as I do, apparently. But there's this giant cliff before them, hundreds and hundreds of feet tall, with a very thick rope conveniently left there for them, tied to a boulder at the top. And the reason the villain is so happy is because he believes that only his giant is strong enough to ascend that rope, and the man chasing them will not be able to catch them once they're on that rope. 
And so sure enough, the giant with all three, the, the princess and the, the boss and the other henchmen holding on to him, climbs up this rope and ascends the cliff. And that sort of picture is how we have to understand everything that Jesus has done for us. That his death for us, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, these things are not remote from us. The reason they benefit us is because in some mysterious way, when we call upon Christ for mercy, we are connected to him. So that just like the people with their arms around that giant who ascends the cliff, we were in some mysterious way present with Christ in his crucifixion. And that is why there is no more condemnation for us because our sins have already been condemned. We were present. We were clinging on to him, so to speak, or rather being held by him in his resurrection so that we have already tasted of the new life of being raised in Christ and will do so in the fullness of that resurrection life when he returns. We are connected with Jesus in his ascension and in his sitting at the right hand of the Father. We are present with him just like the names were engraved like jewels on the vestments of the high priest. We are, so to speak, engraved as we sung earlier on Jesus Christ himself, where he sits as our great high priest at the right hand of God. And this, by the way, friends, is why, though we must do so with humility and kindness, it, it is not bigoted for us to maintain that Jesus Christ is the only source of salvation. Because while there may be many religious teachers and many who can give good advice on how to live a good life, at least good by some measures, there is nobody else who is a great high priest like this with whom we can ascend to the very presence of God. So that's a bit about the access that the ascension of Jesus gives to us, the access we have to God. But how do we, in you know, kind of daily life, in, in discipleship, in church life together, how do we kind of appropriate this? How do we benefit from this? What does the ascension actually mean? What does this access to the Father actually mean with regards to how we live and how we do life together as believers? At least one thing we can say from this passage, of course there's, there's much, it means that we have mercy in the midst of temptation. If you look again at verses 2 through 3, we're told that the high priest, because he himself was a sinner, was able to, to offer mercy to fellow sinners. And that is good news. But the even better news up in verse 15 is that we are told, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The book of Hebrews was written to tempted Christians. And specifically, they were tempted to completely give up on the Christian life. Because following Jesus was bringing hardship upon them, and it felt to them as though maybe the cost of being a Christian wasn't worth it, and maybe God was not present enough to strengthen them 
to bear up under the pressures they were facing for following Jesus. And so they were facing temptation. Every single person in this room faces temptation. It's a very uncomfortable word, the word temptation. We sometimes turn it sort of into like a joke. We'll talk about this decadent chocolate cake, which is tempting, which is silly. It's not as though cake is sinful. Or we sometimes think of temptation as sort of like an outdated, prudish sort of term used by people who are just like afraid of enjoying life. But temptation is really that inner pull that all of us have that inclines us to ignore God and to seek our own good rather than the good of anybody else. To ignore God and to be selfish. And every single one of us has that internal pull. That's the very definition of sin. What tempts you the most? Bitterness? Self-righteousness? Love of money? destructive sexual behavior, simply giving up on pursuing Jesus earnestly. It is, it is easy for us to feel in the midst of our temptation that Jesus is absent. That if, if he were present, we would not feel tempted in such ways. Or to feel that if we are experiencing temptation and our heart is being drawn after sin, that Jesus must be kind of looking at us with disappointment, with contempt, with disdain. But we're told the exact opposite in this passage. We're told that he looks at us with sympathy. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus experienced everything about being human, except the experience of being sinful. But he experienced temptation to the point of suffering. Not because there was anything sinful in him that wanted to go after sin, but because as a, as a human, as an actual man, as a creature, he put himself into a position to experience vulnerability, to experience being drawn, at least uh, to experience evil coming at him and seeking to draw him after itself. We're told in verse 7, we're given a vivid description of the sort of suffering that Jesus experienced in the midst of temptation. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Loud cries and tears. Wesley Hill is a theology professor at a, a school in Pennsylvania, and he's the author of a book called Washed and Waiting, which is a, a memoir about his life as a celibate, committed celibate Christian who has experienced same-sex attraction his entire life since he began to experience attraction. And the, the, the battle for faithfulness that he engages in every day he tells his own story, and he shares the stories of other Christians with similar struggles. He describes one of them as saying, I once faced a temptation that was so persistent and so overwhelming that I literally, literally believed my whole world would go dark if I refused to give in to it. And all I could do was scream to the Holy Spirit to keep me. It's another place in his book where Wesley Hill describes 
the experience of spiritual transformation, of sanctification, as being like cut open with a knife. <laughs> it's agonizing at times. Jesus felt the same thing. Not because sin had to be rooted out of him, but because the experience of resisting sin presented him with that much suffering. And that means that at the moment when you are the most desperate to give in to bitterness or lust or deceptiveness or whatever it might be, Jesus pities you. He has sympathy for you. He has a heart of kindness for you. Because he can relate to the sort of suffering you experience as you pursue holiness. And that's why we're told in verse 16 of chapter 4, because of this mercy Christ has for us in our temptation, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us go repeatedly over and over again to the throne itself because now in Christ we have direct access to God himself to get fresh help whenever we need it. I read a book last summer maybe by a woman named Manal Al-Sharif called Daring to Drive. She is a Saudi woman who participated in this movement um, of women seeking the right to drive in Saudi Arabia, which while never technically illegal on the books, was uh, practically illegal. And so she drove in a car around the streets of Saudi Arabia and would video herself on her phone and then post to social media uh, simply talking about her desire to drive freely in her home country. And it got her arrested and put into a Saudi jail for women, which is not exactly like a vacation rental on Lake Michigan. Bug-infested illness, very little sanitation. It sounded like an absolute living hell. When her father found out that she was in prison, he went, this is apparently a practice in Saudi Arabia. I feel like I was reading something from the Old Testament, like people going before King Solomon. He went and got in line on one of the days when you can do this to ask the king of Saudi Arabia to release her. You can apparently just go do this. It would be like going to the White House and getting in line to go beseech the president. And what he did was he, he, wait, he, he brought uh, the fellow elders of his tribe, his clan. They went to the palace. They paid a scribe to help write the request in adequate and uh, concise language. You know, these people stand outside to help people. And then he went in before the king, laid before the king his problem, and asked the king for mercy. Please release my daughter. And the king apparently answered just with two words, advise her, which meant essentially I'll grant this, but tell her to go sin no more, <laughs> you know, in his terms. And that day, apparently, he pulled whatever strings had to be pulled, and hundreds of miles away she was released from prison. We are told we have that sort of access, but even greater. We don't have to wait in line. We don't have to word our requests perfectly. 
We are beloved of the King, and we have access, and we can draw near and find help in time of need, in time of temptation. So, to kind of crystallize this for us and to kind of bring us in for a landing, where have we been so far? We've been this morning talking about, all throughout our worship service, the, the ascension of Jesus. And we've been, we've been reflecting on the ascension as a critical aspect of what our Lord has done. A seamless part of the story of redemption along with his, his incarnation, his coming in the flesh, and his, his sinless life, and his crucifixion, and death, and burial, and resurrection. And we've been saying that the ascension of Jesus is not only his ascension, but it's our ascension. Because he, so to speak, brings us with him. And that means we have access to God. And in practical terms, this means that we have sympathy and we have a place to go for help in time of need and in time of temptation, in time of trial. And so I want to ask how this fits into what Pastor Jeff has been talking with you about this notion of becoming an increasingly beautiful church for the world in a world that that needs the people of God to be a beautiful people. And just sort of two very concrete and brief kind of applications of this. One is I just want to encourage you, this comes out of just my own experience as a pastor, not to be afraid to come to the shepherds of your church when you need care. You know, we're told here about the great high priest, and I'm not a great high priest, I'm a pastor, but I am, you know, clergy as the great high priest was. Every great high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. I cannot tell you how many people when they have come to me, not because they had some programmatic concern, but because they have had an actual pastoral need, are really apologetic about it. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be so needy. I know you're so busy. And I say to them, my job is to be here to provide spiritual care. You're not distracting me from my work. This is my work. You do not need to be embarrassed about being beset with weakness. I am beset with weakness. Don't be afraid to go to your elders or deacons or women's shepherding team or whomever it may be. And by extension, of course, everybody in the body of Christ can play a role in providing care for others and being the sort of man or woman or child who knows that he or she is beset by weakness and can therefore deal gently with others who are beset by weakness. And likewise, we can demonstrate, oh, I actually just have to briefly, I have to share with you a way in which I experienced this this week. And uh, he's not here this morning, but I, if you ever have an appointment with me, I am very unlikely to be late or to stand you up because I'm very good at keeping my appointments. Unless your name is Ted Powers, who's not here this morning. Because Ted, who teaches these city seminary classes, which are hosted at our site, usually on Monday nights, which is my day off, has asked me and I've happily agreed to go unlock the door for them. But for some reason, because I'm not used to doing anything on Monday, there's been like five times I've just completely forgotten and like 15 minutes after they're supposed to stop, I see these frantic texts from Ted on my phone, and I'm like, <clears throat> and I have to, fortunately, I live a mile and a half away. This last semester, the course has moved to Thursday, and I knew now that they're not early in the week, I will never forget them because I don't forget. It's just a Monday thing. 
And I made it to the first couple. And then this last week, all day on Wednesday, I knew tomorrow is Thursday. I cannot forget to go unlock the door on Thursday. And on Wednesday night, I put my phone down for a few hours. I didn't look at it during my few hours of the family. And I looked at it before bed at like 10 o'clock, and there was these texts from Ted. Nick, we need to get into the building. I said to my wife, what day is it? And she said, it's Thursday. And I said, no, all day it's been Wednesday. And I texted Ted, and someone else had let him into the building about what an idiot I felt like. And uh, he didn't respond. And the next morning I looked at my phone and he still hadn't responded. And I was like, I finally crossed the line where it went from that's okay to I really ticked him off. But at about 11 a.m., he texted back, Nick, unfortunately, I can understand all too well from my own experience. And I just felt that was honestly such mercy. Don't be afraid. Your pastors are weak people, just like you are, as are the other leaders in the church. But then finally, and and really finally now, we want to be people who demonstrate a posture to the world that doesn't say, We are the religious people who have everything right and you are the people who are wrong, even though we do believe that Jesus Christ, of course, we have these particular beliefs about Jesus, but we want to have a face to the world that says we believe we are beset by weakness. And because we are beset with weakness, this church family that we would love to invite you to explore wherever you're at on your kind of journey of faith is a place where if it becomes apparent that you too are beset by weakness— you're going to be surrounded by people who deal gently with you because we are the same as you in that regard. A woman came to my door the other day who lives a few blocks away. She had alcohol on her breath and she said her, son, her son's inhaler was empty and his asthma was bothering him and she didn't have the relatively small copay to get it refilled until her welfare check came the next week. Another neighbor of mine across the street who had dealt with this woman before kind of shouted out to me, don't help her, she'll be back, Which, and she won't pay you back. And I, you know, believed him. We did help her. If she comes again, that's not blowing a trumpet about my own righteousness. I'm just sharing the story. And if she comes again, we'll try to introduce her to the deacons of our church. But when we helped her, she said to me, I can't believe this. This is amazing because we gave her the full amount she needed for the inhaler. I have some family in Florida who's like this, and they're Christians. And we said to her, well, we're Christians as well. And we invited her to church. She didn't, I know, we'll see if she comes. I'm not uh, putting any money on it. But my point is, when we show sympathy to people, even people like her who clearly, she drank the money that needed to go to her son's inhaler. And to have an ongoing relationship, it wouldn't be good to just enable. I understand all of that. We need, you know, we'd have to want to work with her and help. I get that. But if we encounter people with compassion and with sympathy in their weakness and in their temptation, it will incline them to think, maybe these Christians are people I could be around safely. Maybe they will handle me gently. And I actually see an enormous measure of that at this church and at uh, our site in Palos. And so this is not a, a condemnation, but this is just something to keep in mind before us. How can we demonstrate gentleness to the non-Christians around us? We have an ascended Lord who is gentle with us, who gives us access, who gives us mercy, 
and calls us to extend mercy and kindness and gentleness to the world around us. So let's take a minute, having considered this tremendously good news from the book of Hebrews, and spend some time in community confession of sin, knowing that the only safe place to go with our sins is to the one against whom we have sinned. Because he is the great high priest who is able to cast all our sins as far as the east is from the west and to give us mercy in time of need. So let's pray together the words of this confession of sin. There'll be some time for quiet confession in the middle before we finish our corporate prayer together. Almighty God, you have raised Jesus from death to life and crowned him Lord of all. We confess that we have not bowed before him or acknowledged his rule in our lives. We have gone along with the ways of the world and failed to give him glory. Forgive us and raise us from sin, that we may be your faithful people, obeying the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ, who rules the world and is head of the church, his body. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, lift your eyes and receive this word of grace from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. God who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, by God's grace, we are saved from our sins and forgiven. Thanks be to God.